0: Father God, uh, today as we approach Christmas, um, and, and even as I, I prepared to to share this message, Father, um, I could feel the weight of, of what we're about to talk about and look at. And um, I just want before my friends to ask you and plead with you for you to remove anything of the flesh in me and put it to the side so that As we look at your word, as we engage the reality that we're going to look at today, Father God, that focuses in on the joy that we have in Jesus in this season and in every season, Father, that you would speak clearly and powerfully, Father God, that you would remove error from my mouth, that you would remove anything that I might say that would lead my friends in the wrong direction and that you would anchor all of us, myself especially, in the truth of your word. Help us to hear everything that you have for us to say. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. So the first chapter of the book of Job goes something like this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And as you probably know, Satan goes out and he does his absolute worst to all that belongs to Job, everything that belongs to him. in one fell sweep, it's gone, including his 10 children. To which verse 20 tells us Job's response, then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped and he said naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord and all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong and if the story stopped there it would be an amazing testament of a man's steadfastness, his faithfulness amid a deluge of trials that I am confident any one of us can barely even conceive. But it doesn't stop there. Chapter 2 begins with, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came, also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's It is impossible, I think, and I'm going to speak from my own experience, it is impossible to comprehend the degree of trauma that washes over the life of Job in this book. Which is, shockingly, this trauma will be sustained for 40 more chapters. It's not brief. It's not mild. It is horribly unsettling. And it continues page after page after page for 40 chapters. The trials of Job, you all know this. The trials of Job are something we've all read. We've heard his story. This blameless, righteous man, Job, is given over by God into the hands of the enemy. And he is ravaged and brutally assaulted to the point where his own wife is wondering, why don't you just kill yourself? Why don't you just get it over right now? She says, curse God and die. To which Job responds, shall we receive good from God and not evil? And he doesn't curse God. He just wrestles with God for 40 chapters. Now, if you were here the last two weeks, uh, you might be wondering what in the world does the story of Job have to do with this series we've been in called The Anatomy of Joy, a series that really is focusing on the meaning of Christmas, the joy we have in Christmas. And you might be asking, what does that have to do with the story of Job? Like what in the world could that event, Jesus being born into the world and bringing joy into the world for us, have to do with the story of Job? And the answer to that question is everything. It has everything to do with the story of Job. Christmas joy has everything to do with the story of Job, and this is exactly what we will see today as we continue to explore the first chapter in First Peter. So if you have your Bible, please grab them and turn to First Peter chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 6 and 7 today. So in the first two weeks, while you're turning there, we looked at week one, the centrality of hope in the Christian's joy. Hope is a joy that we are longing for. We also looked at, in week two, the centrality of faith in our pursuit of joy, that faith is laying hold of that future joy we hope in and drawing it into the the present and experiencing some of that joy in the present. And... The joy and focus in this season is what I've been talking about. The joy is Jesus. It's knowing him. It's trusting him. It's hoping in him and longing for him. Jesus is our joy in this season. But at this point in 1 Peter, after engaging faith and hope, he takes a hard right turn. Peter seems to jump off script and go somewhere we don't expect him to go. I didn't expect him to go. In Peter's survey of the anatomy of joy we find Job. We find a glimpse of Job that we all know at some level. And verse 6 and 7 will tell us that one of the parts of our joy is something that does not seem to fit in the puzzle of our joy. It doesn't seem to fit. It feels disconnected from any kind of joy we would ever want. Yet Peter says that it is deeply connected to our joy. And this something is precisely what we just read in those passages about Job. This something is the suffering that someone experiences in the world who loves God. Someone who trusts in Jesus. The pain that they experience in this world, being grieved by trials in this world, that is part of this joy that Peter is painting as he draws up the diagram. So I want you to listen to verses 6 and 7, 1 Peter 1 we're just going to look at these two verses. We're not going to look at any other verses uh, in 1st Peter 1 today, just these two. He says, "In this you rejoice." There's our joy. "Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire," may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when, when Peter says, just backing up a little bit, when Peter says, in this you rejoice, he's talking about the joy that we were referring to in the beginning, the joy that's experienced in hope, the joy that's experienced in faith, which came in the previous verses. And this joy is the joy of Christmas, the joy of, it's the joy of a Christian. It's the same joy that 2,000 years ago, that angel, when he proclaimed to the shepherds good news of great joy, that's the joy he's talking about. And we've seen this. Peter in verse 8 of the first chapter here refers to it as an inexpressible joy filled with glory. This is that joy that he's referring to. But Peter in verse 6, like I said, introduces something that is seemingly contradictory to joy. And for most of us, incomprehensible in our framework of what joy should be. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And this word though is critical here because Peter recognizes the tension that you already feel. He knows that as he's writing it. I have to put though here because this isn't going to seem right to them. I have to put though here because this is going to seem very strange. What I'm about to tell them is going to seem strange. No one intuitively connects suffering with joy. And Peter's about to do it. And he's like, I need to put though here. And so our question is, how is it, how is he doing this? How is he, how is he connecting joy with being grieved by various trials? And this is, this week as I was preparing this, um, this week was interesting in just terms of prayer requests that came in to me. And just in reflection on this last year, in the last year and a half, to be perfectly honest, in our body, there's been a lot of trials and suffering, and pain, and as I'm going through this message, figuring out what God is saying here by the Holy Spirit, I recognize that, I mean, even in just the last few days, some of us have experienced great suffering, and that means we need to hear this. We need to hear what God says, not what Jeremy says. It doesn't matter what Jeremy says. It matters what God says, the only value we will have here is if God actually speaking into this situation. And here's the deal. I love you guys. You guys are my friends. I know that I need to hear this. And I know that we can't as a church afford to miss this. If we're gonna have this joy, we need to know how does our pain and our suffering and our trials, how is that woven into the joy, the inexpressible joy that the angel declared to the shepherds years ago? And so this text is speaking to all of us. Peter begins here in this passage with the words, though now for a little while, which tell us a few things. The first thing, though now for a little while, tells us is that (laughs) this pain isn't something in the past that he's talking about. It is a pain they're experiencing now. It's a pain that we're experiencing right now. This is not a past trial that we've just gone past and we can reflect on it and say, yeah, God was good in this. This is suffering that is being experienced in the moment, which tells us something amazing. It tells us that the Christian, this is, if you think about how strange this is, the Christian has the capacity to have joy in the middle of suffering. That's not normal. That is not normal. They have the capacity to do that. It's an astonishing thing that the joy of a Christian is not contingent on circumstances or events or what's going on in my life or any other kind of tragedy that has collided with my life. Their joy isn't ultimately based on that. Their joy, the joy of the Christian, is fueled from a completely different source. And therefore, the excruciating waves of sorrow, though they are very real, though they should cause us great sorrow that we are experiencing them, they're not the anchor of our joy. The event is not the anchor of our joy. Something else anchors us. And the second thing that Peter tells us here is um, that our pain, if you look at this, though now for a little while, our pain is not permanent, though now for a little while. Our pain is temporary. Whether our suffering is a matter of minutes or hours or days or years or decades, it is temporary. As Peter says, it is a little while. It's a momentary thing, even if we don't feel that in the moment. And it may seem And I know because I've walked through this. I know that some of you are walking through this. It may seem to you like the pain in the season you're in is never going to end. It's been months or maybe even years. But what a little while means is that your pain has an expiration date. It's going to end. It's going to end. It will not last forever. One day it will be gone for all eternity never to be awakened again. But right now, it is a little while. And when it goes against the backdrop of endless joy in the presence of Almighty God, we will all, I can say this with confidence, look back on our pain no matter how long it was in our life, no matter how deep the blade cut, and we will say, that was only a little while. It felt like a lot at the time but now that I see him, it, it was only just a little, a little while. Peter is saying that there's a time in our future, I want us to feel this, I want us to know this. There's a time in our future when our trials will come to an end. Our suffering will cease to be, that day is headed toward us. It is a real day in the future. It's not just something we thought up, it is really going to happen. And I want, I want that to weigh on us. We need that to weigh on us when we talk about suffering. God has promised to wipe all of our tears away and he means to keep that promise. He will keep that promise. That will happen. So your pain has an end date. No matter how deep the valley, no matter how dark the shadow, as J.R.R. Tolkien said in Return of the King, one day all the sad things are gonna come untrue. and there'll be ancient history. That's going to happen. Um, But what Peter says next, and I I think we can see that. We can see in the Bible, yes, I know that my pain is experiencing right now, and I I know that we're called to rejoice in the middle of our pain, and and yes, I know that... um, Our pain's going to end one day. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the hope of eternal life. I know that. But what Peter says next is actually way more challenging for us to see. Peter says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary. He is referring to trials in the life of a Christian as being necessary. And that's a, hard, that's a hard concept to understand that there can be a kind of pain that a, a God who loves me, who delights in my gladness, and who is infinitely gracious to me, there's a kind of pain that he would deem necessary. Or another word, essential. Essential. But here's the thing as we read through scripture, we find that among all the Christians, and really every person of faith in the scriptures, everybody who trusts in God, there is this expectation that under the providence of an infinitely loving, infinitely gracious God, we should still expect trials in this world. We should still expect and anticipate pain that trials and sufferings should not be a surprise, especially to the Christian, which means that under the hand of a sovereign God, they're not a mistake over an oversight or an oversight. They're not something that just slipped under the cracks. He's like, where did that come from? The trials and the suffering actually exist for a reason in our lives. For example, 1 Peter 4, at the end of the book we're in, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised, do not be surprised, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. That word fiery, he's drawing upon what he said about gold earlier. Fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad. When his glory is revealed. Peter's saying here, Christians, don't be surprised about the fiery trial. Just don't be surprised as if there's something strange or weird happening to you. It's not strange. Because in chapter one, I described it as necessary. It's not strange. And this isn't just Peter's opinion in this book, this is literally everywhere in the New Testament. Um, For example, Acts 14. You remember the scene. Paul is in Lystra. They don't like what he's saying. So they stone him to death, effectively. They drag him outside the city. All of his friends gather around him, wondering where they're going to bury him. He stands up, picks his bloody body off the ground. And then when he comes back through Lystra, he goes into the city, stays there for a while. When he comes back through Lystra, he tells the disciples to continue in the faith because it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom. That was his discipleship plan. This is how you learn to be a Christian. First step, many tribulations. Is an expectation and not a surprise. There's only one path into the kingdom through many tribulations. Jesus himself, if you remember John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. Which is similar to Paul in Philippians 1.29. I mentioned this last week. Paul says here, for it has been granted to you, as he's talking to Christians, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is a remarkable verse if you just think about what Paul's saying here. He's saying that God has granted to you Christians not only the faith with which you trust Jesus, but the very suffering that comes along with that faith, the very very adversity that comes along with that faith. That's what granted is. Granted is, in the Greek, it's another word for being given a gift. And the giver of our faith here is clearly God and Paul is saying in Philippians 1, this is a package deal. It's a package deal. It's not just faith. It's faith and suffering for his sake. And if we're tempted to say, well, Jeremy, all these examples here seem to be about persecution or about trials that you experience um, being a Christian and proclaiming the word of God, um, that, for example, losing a loved one, or um, struggling with depression, or anxiety, or all sorts of tragedies and traumas, illness, sickness, disease, they can't be part of the equation in this passage. And I would humbly beg to differ. And I have a lot of reasons for differing from the Bible. But I'm gonna suggest here that all suffering in this fallen world, as it presses down on the life of a Christian, is exactly what Peter and Paul and Jesus have in view when they say the word tribulation or when they say the word trial. Whether persecution or illness or calamity or some massive loss that strikes your life, all of that collides with the Christian in the same way. It hits headlong into our faith. Do we trust him in the middle of this pain? And the authors of Scripture, whenever they survey Paul, Jesus, I just read a passage uh, in Matthew from Jesus today where he blends both of them together. Whenever they survey suffering, they have no problem combining all kinds of suffering together because they recognize that all kinds of suffering have, ultimately have the same effect. And we know, we know biblically that suffering in this world from Genesis 3 exists because of sin. That's why suffering entered into the world. Everything from natural disasters to human evil against other people. All of that comes from sin, and it shows us that the violence of this world, the darkness of all of that suffering and pain show us how ugly sin really is. They're a, a kind of reflection of the moral horror of mankind loving anything more than God, which is the essence of sin. That's the basis of Sin. And so suffering is a picture painted for us about how vile sin really is, but that doesn't mean that all suffering that we experience in our lives is because of our own sin. Job is a great example of this. Sometimes it has nothing to do with our sin, and we're still suffering. Yet Peter, as he writes this first chapter, would refer to these trials, all of them As necessary in this passage. And the reason is because suffering in this world doesn't just show us the horror and the the moral vileness of sin, of defacing and dishonoring God by loving other things more than his infinite beauty and worth. Suffering also shows us the value of Jesus Christ, shows us the beauty of Jesus. And this is true about all kinds of suffering, whether it's persecution, Or whether it's cancer. Or whether it's a car crash that takes someone you love. All kinds of suffering can be funneled into this same crucible. Let's listen again to 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, Peter says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter's saying here, we've been grieved by various trials. This is necessary. This is necessary. To be grieved by trials isn't a surprise. It's part of the framework of your joy because he says the words, so that so that so that the test of genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus all suffering tests the genuineness of our faith and the words so that tell us why it answers the question why is this necessary like who would think this is necessary and he answers this peter says it is so that christians in this life, who are forgiven of their sin before God, who are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ and who are blessed with a relationship with God still experience suffering. The words, so that, tell us the trials and the pain that we experience in our life are not random, they are not just circumstantial and they're not meaningless. So that tells us, that there's a purpose in our pain. There's a purpose in our suffering. We experience trials so that, Peter says, our faith would be tested and proven to be genuine. The purpose of trials in our lives as Christians is to take our faith, to purify it, to refine it, to strengthen it, because Peter recognizes here that Saving faith, faith in Jesus, is the most precious thing in the world for someone to possess. He says it's more precious than even gold, which is, Peter at the time is reaching for the, the highest possible value he can find. Gold, infinitely more precious than gold. I mean, gold was the apex at that time of all that one could possess. And Peter says, next to nothing, when it's set against faith. It is nothing. Because gold perishes. You test it with fire, you purify it with fire, but it's going. Like it, it, it is next to faith, worthless. Because real faith doesn't perish. True faith, which we said last week, we defined it as receiving and embracing all that Jesus is for us, in the scriptures, who he is, that faith is, Peter says, more valuable than gold. It's more valuable than anything you could possess in this world. And the reason why is that faith is what gives us Jesus. That's how we get Jesus. And for the Christian, there's nothing more important. There's nothing more glorious and more valuable than Jesus Christ. He is everything to us and faith gives us him. Faith is how we receive him. And Jesus is our joy. And so if faith anchors us to Christ, then this verse is telling us that God is going to great lengths in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our tears and suffering to strengthen us and to augment that faith. He's saying that there's in our pain a divine purpose to secure our everlasting joy. And the reason why is because if your faith is in Jesus, you are focused on the greatest joy in the universe. There is nothing greater or higher than Jesus Christ. That's why the words, so that, exist in this text. It's so important. Because I think when we see the jagged violence of all the pain and struggles that we have in our lives, and I know a lot of them, when we look at those we can forget that despite the enemy's evil in bringing those things about, God has a good in it, that there is a divine good purpose in it. And Peter says here that true faith, when we finally set our eyes on Jesus, when when he returns and we see him face to face, that faith will result, he says, in worship. It like literally becomes worship. It results in praise and glory and honor at his coming. And that's important. We looked at that when we looked at hope. But what I want to look at now here is what that means in the present. Because that's something that's going to happen in the future. That's going to happen. Your faith will become praise and worship. But that's not all that Peter's saying because he's talking about pain right now and he's talking about joy right now. And so how in the season of suffering, how is it that we experience joy? When we trust Jesus without being able to see him with our physical eyes, how do we experience joy in that moment? And Peter's going to tell us. To cling to Christ when your whole world is falling apart is one of the greatest acts of worship a person can commit to. It's one of the greatest acts of praise and honoring and glorifying of Jesus that someone can do in their life because it shows how valuable he really is to you. And last week we saw in verse 5 of 1 Peter 1 that our faith is God's instrument to guard us for the final day, for that day when we see him, for that joy that is awaiting for us at the end. And so what God is doing in the middle of the trials, what God is doing in the middle of the suffering is he is strengthening that faith because he is showing that our lives are not defined by the circumstances we're in. This doesn't mean you you don't need to cry or you shouldn't cry you absolutely weep. You absolutely go through the emotional rigors of the pain, but there is underneath all of the sorrow a joy that the Christian has because for the Christian, their lives aren't defined by the circumstances. They're defined by the one that they have confidence in, the one that they trust, especially in the middle of tears. And so genuine faith is essential to the joy of the Christian and God is doing things inside trials to make that faith like iron so that we never ever decouple from Jesus. We're always anchored to him. Suffering and trials in this life are not additive. They're not just something that kind of works into the equation of life and you kind of have to go through them. They are essential to the joy of a Christian Because if the object of our joy is Jesus and faith in him presses us into the embrace of that object, then suffering is forcing us deeper into the arms of our Savior, deeper into the arms of our Christ, our Jesus. He's telling us with every tear that this world is in our home, that we belong to him reminding us that he is the solution, that in the trauma that fills this world, that the suffering that we have functions as a crucible, burning all the parts of our lives that try to cling to things in our life instead of clinging to him, instead of clinging to the joy found in him. And this is exactly what is going on with Job at the beginning of this message. Satan told God, listen, you take away all that you've given him. Take away all of that and he's going to curse you to your face. He's going to do that. He's going to curse you. In other words, he only loves you because of your gifts. Take away your gifts. He won't love you. He doesn't love you, God, because of who you are infinitely, intrinsically. He loves you because of what you blessed him with. And so take that away, and he'll hate you with every breath. That's what Satan is telling God is gonna happen, so God allows it. Note that Satan can't just do what he wants. God's not like, who is watching Satan? You let him do all this stuff to Job? Satan needs to come to God to get permission to do anything, anything, and he does that here. And although Satan is desperately trying to obliterate Job's faith, and make him turn against God, God allows it because inside, in, inside the actual suffering, inside the pain, it is actually serving God's purpose in Job's life. Because Job's suffering carves a path for him to something that is more beautiful and more glorious than he could have possibly imagined. Better than what he had at the beginning of the book. And we see this right as Job is about to give up. Now listen to this final exchange between God and Job at the end of the book. Job is about to give up. This is before God restores anything to Job. He hasn't given him back anything yet. In chapter 42, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The gift in the book of Job at the end of this book isn't the restoration of all that Job had. He does get that. The gift at the end of the book is this. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now that I see you, you're more wonderful than I could have ever possibly conceived of. There's no way that I would have even thought that you were this great, this glorious, this amazing. The gift at the end of the book of Job is that he gets God. He gets God And in a a moment's time, in a split second, as he's saying these words, it's all worth it. Forty chapters are worth it. The restoration of Job's possession and his health being restored at the end and him getting his children back, they're merely an echo of this one scene where he comes face to face with God where he's confronted by the splendor of God's worth and beauty. And James, in the New Testament, when he reflects on this in chapter 5 of his book, he says something amazing. Listen to how James describes this event in the entire book of Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I mean, at first blush, I'm like, are you reading the same book? It's 42 chapters. A lot of it was written with tears. In one hand, a pen to write it. In the other hand, a piece of broken pottering. And James says, you want to know what the story of Job was about? It was about compassion. It was about the mercy of God. Because there is a vision of God that a human being can have that is impossible to have unless you've cried tears of pain in your life. There's an experience of the worth and reality of God that is impossible for people who have not sobbed themselves to sleep at night because they lost someone they loved or because they're suffering some kind of horrendous experience. And that vision is what James is talking about. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, and I believe he means All the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what this passage tells us is that God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have joy and gladness more than you've ever wanted that for yourself. But he's not Interested in, in merely momentary happiness. He wants your joy to be the highest possible joy in the world. And he wants that joy to last forever. That's what God desires for you. And there is only one place in the universe where that kind of joy possible. It's called Jesus Christ. First Peter, the book of Job, all of the Bible, never ever downplay the ugliness of suffering. They never ever say it's okay, it's all right. They never look over it and apply a, a paint of, a coat of paint to cover it up. The Bible handles suffering and, and, and pain and trials as what they really are. They're ugly, they're horrible in this life. We should hate suffering in this life. But what Peter and Job and what the entire course of Scripture do tell us is that our suffering isn't meaningless. It's not purposeless, that God has purposed in the middle of our suffering that we would experience real, lasting joy, which is why Paul tells us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth even comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. They're not even in the same zip code to what we're gonna experience when we're with him. The glory that belongs to Jesus is the glory that he's talking about there, and he is inviting us into it in the present, this future glory that we're gonna experience. This joy is not just coming to us in the future. Peter is saying that in the middle of our suffering, there is a way that we can taste and experience this inexpressible joy filled with glory. Because suffering isn't just a factor in the equation, like I said earlier, in the equation of life. On our way to future joy it is an essential piece of the puzzle in the anatomy of joy because it drives us deeper into the arms of our Savior, where we need to be. And there's no, I want you to listen to me and hear this, please. There is no better place in the cosmos to be than in the arms of Jesus. And he has promised to hold you. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus isn't going anywhere. He's there with you. He knows exactly what you're experiencing. And one day, he's gonna stick his hand on your cheek and he's gonna wipe away those tears and you're not gonna cry anymore. The sad things will be untrue. A life filled with suffering in all sorts of different ways forms in various trials, we'll look back on them and we will say like 2 Corinthians 4 says, light momentary affliction. It happened for a little while. It was bad, but it's nothing compared to him. It is nothing compared to him. That's going to happen. That promise is going to happen. Lay hold of it in the middle of your suffering. Recognize that he's with you there. He wants you to be glad there because he's all that you need. He's all sufficient for you. Jesus is enough. And the reason we can say that with confidence is because what we're about to celebrate here in the next few minutes. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is the reason why we can, the the event that, that it points to is the reason why we can say this with confidence because if Christ Jesus is your faith, then everything I've said to you today doesn't just apply to Job doesn't just apply to the people that Peter was talking to. It applies to each one of you. And so if your faith is in Christ, I would ask that as you take the elements today in the Lord's Supper, that we would remind ourselves, we remind each other in conversation. We would remind ourselves because we're so prone to think of this that one day suffering will come to an end for all of us because Jesus is the object of our faith. And he took the cup of our suffering and drank it all the way to the bottom. And on that cross, he purchased for us with his own blood eternal joy and the kind of faith we would need to have it one day. He bought that with his own blood. That wasn't free. He paid for it in his own suffering. So please hear me. Your suffering will have an expiration date. It's going to end. But Peter tells us in, in the middle of it, it is not meaningless. It is not pointless. The purpose of our tears is to bring us closer to Jesus. And what this means is that your eyes, God made your eyes not Ultimately, so that they would weep, but so that they would see his glory. That's why he made your eyes. It's the main reason that you see. And he made your mouth not ultimately so that you would weep, though you will in this life, he made it so that you would sing his praises. That's why your mouth was made. That's why your vocal capacities and faculties were made. To sing to him in gladness and in joy forever. And I'm promising you, one day you will. And we need to embrace that in the moment as God strengthens our faith and brings us deeper into Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's impossible to compass every single pain that's been experienced by my friends this week, this month, this year. It's, it's impossible to even begin to fathom some of the pain that has been experienced here. But I know that you do. And I know that you're with us in the middle of it. You are holding our breaking hearts together with your own two hands. And you are telling us, I'm not going anywhere. We need to hear that. We need to to hear that as we worship. We need to hear that in the middle of communion. We need to hear that and know that that is true You are not going anywhere. And Father, as the trials of this life begin to slough off of us the the parts of our hearts that are trying to cling to things that are in this world as though they are eternal, that you would help us have the wisdom and the sight to see by the eyes of our hearts through the pain and into the joy, like Jesus did in Hebrews 12. That we would see your joy, your gladness, what we are being invited into in your presence. And that, that and in, in seeing that with the eyes of faith, it would stream into the presence, the present, and we would know you, Father God. Help us to experience that this week, today. And I pray that you'd be with us in this season, Father God, that we would see the essentialness of these parts of joy as being something that you've woven in the fabric of our hearts since the moment that we saw you and loved you. And help us reflect on that in this season as we celebrate Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.